0: Hello and welcome to another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe, and anthropology. Each episode, a few of us from Deakin sit down with a visiting fellow anthropologist to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. I'm David Giles, a lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University, and I'm here with my co host, Timothy Neal. Uh, research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. Today, we're speaking with Frederick Keck, who is a researcher at the CNRS Laboratory of Social Anthropology and director of the research department of the Kay Branley Museum in Paris. After studying philosophy at the École Normale Supérieure in Paris, and then anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley, He has investigated the history of anthropology and contemporary biopolitical questions as well. In the course of this, he has written several books in French, including on the work of Claude Lévy-Strauss and Lucien Lévy-Bruhl, and co-edited a special issue of Lim with A Lackoff on Sentinel Devices. Also joining us in our conversation is, as always, a special guest from Deakin. Today, that guest is Andrea Whitcomb. Professor of Cultural Heritage and Museum Studies in the School of Arts and Education and Deputy Director of the Alfred Deakin Institute. So welcome everyone. Thank you. Uh, so we always start out with a, uh, a general question, you know, to, to remind us all of what's important and why we all got into this in the first place. So the first question we ask is, what got you into anthropology in the first place? How did you become interested in it?
1: Um,
2: <clears throat> I guess I did anthropology because I didn't know what to choose <laughs> in my studies. <laughs> so
1: A very common
3: story.
2: I, 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 I knew I would not do mathematics or physics, mm-hmm. but I was very interested in biology. And at one point, I chose humanities against mathematics mm-hmm. and... Um, I I had the chance to enter the Ecole Normale Supérieure when I was uh, 20 years old. So it's a a public school where you are considered as a civil servant. Um, uh, And uh, you can study anything. You have the best teachers in the school in Paris. And I could study um, art history, Chinese, um, political history. Uh, And then I chose philosophy because philosophy in France is... The, the the discipline you study when you don't want to choose. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the science, the science, the the science of general concepts. <laughs> yeah. um, and but I was also very curious, particularly about China, and uh, I <clears throat> started to work on um, uh, the writings of Lucien Levy Bruy, because he was a philosophy professor at the Sorbonne at the end of the 19th century, coming from the École Normale Supérieure. And um, he did this series of books about primitive mentality uh, that have remained famous because they are linked to the colonial history of French anthropology. But his first... um, I mean, he came to primitive mentality for two reasons. One is that he was uh, curious about Chinese text. uh, Sinology was developing at that time. And because he couldn't learn Chinese, he turned to ethnographic data because he said they were more <laughs> available. Mm-hmm. And the second reason is what he was very engaged in the Dreyfus uh, affair. He was the cousin of Dreyfus. Yeah. And it's also so his work is also linked to the uh, uh, socialist movement, to the history of socialist movement. And uh, so I, I, I drew this philosophical genealogy of uh, French anthropology, starting with Lucien Averule and going to Claude Lévi-Strauss. But it was a v- very philosophical work. And, and I also had the chance to visit um, uh, Paul Rabineau in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, he taught me how to do fieldwork in contemporary societies, mm-hmm. so very far from the primitive societies that Levi-Strauss and levi bru wrote, wrote about. And that's how I came into biopolitics. Mm-hmm. And, and then in 2005, uh, after my PhD, I entered the CNRS, which is a full-time research center uh, in Paris, and I did field work about matko disease, bird flu, then I went into this emerging field of animal diseases. Mm.
0: So how coming to anthropology from philosophy, uh, how did that shape I mean, how did that shape why anthropology felt important to you?
2: Um, so, French anthropology has the reputation of being interested by um, systems of thought, uh, mental ideas, um, and I guess I was also very curious, also as a reader of Foucault, uh, uh, about what it meant to think in, to think differently. Mm-hmm. I was really interested by this question of thinking. Uh, but not in a cognitive way I mean cognitive science was very strong at that time uh, I wanted to embed thinking into practices uh, and also life forms um, but I guess the the the, 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 the desire for um, difference uh, and yeah. alterity was was the main trigger um, and also what Paul Rabineau very nicely thematized as curiosity, the pure a pure mm. uh, um, interest for the the world as a, a, as a source of difference. Mm. Great. S-
3: right. Okay. so, can you tell us a little bit about what anthropology actually brings to the study of pandemics and biosecurity? So, a little bit more about how you made that shift from an interesting thinking into your specific area of pandemics and biosecurity. It seems to me, from what you're saying, that Rabinow was quite important in that. Mm. So, what exactly was the link there?
2: So, coming from philosophy uh, and studying this uh, new field of uh, emerging infectious diseases and uh, zoonosis, so these pathogens that are transmitted from uh, animals to humans, Mm -hmm. it was quite hard because it's a very technical field. It's also uh, very political with a lot of uh, um, public funding um, Mm -hmm. and also uh, controversies about whether animals should be killed or not. and, and ethical issues, and, and uh, so there, and, uh, uh, risk management. So there was a lot to assimilate <laughs> before actually being able to say something new <laughs> in this field. Um, I guess that the, the, the difference between humans and non-humans, which was very much debated in anthropology at that time, particularly around the works of Bruno Latour and Philippe Descola and all that became later the ontological term in anthropology that you, d- you did not decide uh, what is um, uh, what is human and what is non-human, but it, it's you have living beings and, and the difference is made w- from within the field you study. So I, I was really struck by the um, parallel between two events, which is the, the massive killing of... Um, Cows in Europe at the end of the 1990s. mad cow disease. Mad cow disease. Mm -hmm. And then the massive killing of birds in Asia at the end of the 1990s. The bird flu episode. The bird flu.
3: Singapore, wasn't
2: it? um, And China? Yeah, Hong Kong, uh, China, Vietnam. Uh, And I decided to um, compare the perception of animal disease in Europe and China. Uh, so it's a difference between cows and birds in some way. It's not okay. the same animals. Uh, it's a, also a difference in the ethics uh, of um, uh, compassion to animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a difference in the management of public health. Uh, that is um, this, this major question uh, of how many animals can you kill to save just one human life? Yeah, so it's it's really this ethical question that I try to approach uh, anthropologically.
1: Is there a formula for how many? Because <laughs> I know in not. risk management, you know, there's uh, those things called quals, uh, quality uh, now I've got the rest of it something valued life yeah, and you yeah. Go like, well
2: it, it was very much about the value of life yes mm. but then the value of life is uh, not in, in a kind of uh, intersubjective encounter but it's really about managing populations mm. po- animal populations human populations so risk as 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 a, as a to, to to see what can be controlled what should be left to circulate um, so so uh, in, in this field of zoonosis the, the, the question is mostly uh, how are control measures perceived by uh, 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 people who live in contact with animals like breeders mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I try to take a, 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 a more distant view of, of the, uh, on the question of the value of life
3: so this is I'm finding this quite interesting because I can imagine that philosophically traditions of utilitarianism for example might come into the discussion so but then you're also um, and it's a long time since I did any philosophy at all so forgive me if I haven't got this quite right but I can I can see how then that would connect with moral philosophy and the distinction between morality and ethics But all these things are at a kind of abstract conceptual level. Mm -hmm. And yet your particular study contrasting or comparing um, the mad cow incident with the bird flu incident, and therefore west, Mm -hmm. east, and just brings it into the realm of culture, and I guess therefore Mm -hmm. anthropology. So how do those different systems of thought Mm -hmm. um, rub up against one another for you?
2: So I, I didn't take this debate on the value of animal life philosophically, okay. uh, you know, like uh, utilitarian or yeah. uh, like uh, Kantian uh, yes. morality, because, because Kant actually never had something to say about animals. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I, I try to stay on the level of uh, risk management and to compare different uh, rationalities of risk. Yeah. So there was the debate about the precautionary principle uh, in Europe at that time which is a, a, a very European history uh, on the management of nuclear uh, um, materials um, in, in Germany at the end of the 70s and then transferred to um, an environment and animal disease uh, with micro disease particularly. Uh, but precautionary principle is, is really the idea that if there's a, if, if there's a suspicion about um, a risk then uh, it's better to maximize the risk and uh, takes, take a commodity out of the market. So that, that was the main justification for killing cows, mm-hmm. uh, suspected cows. But then there's, a, there's another uh, principle uh, of risk, which is prevention, mm-hmm. that you can uh, anticipate based on a series of previous cases what will happen. And this is like 19th century welfare state uh, systems of insurance. And then there's a third principle, uh, or or rationality of risk uh, that Andy Lakoff and Stephen Collier and Paul Rabineau analyzed under the term preparedness or biosecurity, Mm -hmm. which is the idea that uh, you have to prepare for events whose probability cannot be calculated, but that have uh, catastrophic uh, effects. And that was the main reason for killing birds in uh, China in uh, 1997, is that uh, the first cases of uh, bird flu uh, were the signs uh, uh, of a pandemic emerging from China to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. But then moving from this field of um, rationalities of risk, I was also interested to see how Chinese societies could perceive the fact that uh, uh, birds were killed to to, 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 to prepare for a human pandemic. And uh, particularly working with Buddhists um, who were um, resisting uh, the killing of, of birds, praying for the souls of uh, chickens. Uh, also Taoists to organize uh, ceremonies uh, uh, where they took the bad energies uh, of uh, chickens outside of the village. So I, I thought a lot about uh, uh, Foucault's description of. Um, uh, sovereign power actually has the power to make die and let live. Uh, I, I tried to think what it meant from China to let live animal. Which there's a Chinese word for that, function, which is to release animals from, from the market. And I was very interested to see, in retrospect to our European debates, where animal rights movement tried to provide rights to animals uh, to, to, to show that uh, Asian societies have traditional means to uh, do precisely what the Kantian philosophy cannot do, which is to consider animals as um, persons or subject, mm-hmm. without giving them autonomy, rationality, and so everything—so
3: sentient beings, yeah. uh, f-
2: um, feeling beings, yeah, feeling. feeling beings, yeah, yeah. Well, because the so the main uh, argument is that because um, uh, uh, animals die like us with the same pathogens then they can be considered as sentinels. That is, they send us early warning signals of diseases that will affect humans. Uh And so how do Chinese citizens think about this possibility of animals being sentinels? That is, they feel like us and they die. They don't die like us. They don't have the same symptoms, but they are symptoms, announced symptoms
1: that we will have so with, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about where this idea of sentinels comes from uh, historically. Have we been using sentinels as, have we been using animals or non-humans as sentinels for a long time? This is quite a new thing. So
2: the origin of uh, the term sentinel is usually traced back to canaries in the coal mine. Yes, Uh,
3: that's exactly what I was remembering. So it's
2: it's really linked to the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, the, so the miners use canaries to because canaries die of uh, sarin mm-hmm. gas, gas, sarin mm-hmm. gas uh, at a at, at a lower dose than uh, humans. Uh, so it's interesting to see how this concept of the canary in the coal mine has been transferred to all kinds of environments. So it's mm-hmm. it's as if the whole planet uh, it was a coal mine where mm-hmm. where yeah. where mm-hmm. birds die of of, of Environmental disease that will affect us, but the other—I um, uh, mean—the the, the the question I had was how sentinel uh, animals are perceived in non-Western or non in non in a non-industrial in, in a history that is not the industrial West. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Chinese societies, for example. Uh, but I'm so I now have a, a a team project about the perception of animal disease in. Um, many kinds of societies, Mongolia, Laos, um, uh, Arab Peninsula with camels. Uh, and so it's it's very much a question that I raised with Levi-Brill because Levi-Brill had decided that um, in what he called primitive societies, animals are perceived as carriers of signs um, and, and humans identify to animals because they carry signs. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so the main problem is how signs are perceived and interpreted by humans and, and pr- produce communication between humans and animals. So it's a question that is far beyond the question of industrial societies and and uh, and, and the disease that industrial societies have produced. It's very much a, a problem of how to live together with animals in an environment in which they sense signs of something that's going to happen.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, as a follow-up to that, I'm, I'm curious about the, this project you mentioned of the team of anthropologists looking at uh, zoonoses, Zoonosis? Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew I'd r- ruin that. <laughs> um, the things you learn from how uh, different societies encounter these uh, new diseases and the extent, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the extent to which uh, your impression of, uh, do they just fit into you know, existing patterns of life, existing symbolic networks and regimes, or do they completely change things?
2: So the, the way I raised the question in, in building this team was to avoid precisely the question as it, as it was raised by public health authorities, which is how do uh, people in contact with animals um, accept uh, biosecurity measures? So right. so, so there's, there's an outbreak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How uh, can we get
1: them to do what we want them to do? Yeah, 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 yeah,
2: yeah. Um, there's an outbreak uh, we have to impose like culling or vaccinating and how do these people understand public health measures mm-hmm. and and usually the idea is they don't understand it because they, are, they have primitive beliefs uh, they are not rational and we have to make them enter into public health rationality mm-hmm. and I'm more interested by the fact that um, public health uses this idea of animals as sentinels but the people who live with animals don't have the same practices mm-hmm. of sentinel animals so because sentinel is a way to perceive animals but depending on the way w- uh, 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 in, in which you live with animals you don't perceive signs of animals the same way so mm-hmm. our model of sentinels actually comes from an industrial society the cannery in the coal mm-hmm. mine mm-hmm. but if, if like people who work with elephants in um, in laos mm-hmm. Uh, don't perceive elephants as canary, can, can, canaries in the coal mine, and yet elephants have tuberculosis, mm. and they may transmit tuberculosis to humans. And um, uh, so, so, the idea is to describe uh, these relations between uh, humans and animals within environments that are culturally um, enriched. Hmm? Uh, without, without deciding uh, uh, what, what is the threat that mm-hmm. for which we have to protect.
0: And of course, those biosecurity protocols, they, they alienate people from people too, in, in the same sort of way. Um, you know, when we're talking about terrorism, it, it, you know, in a way, the, the terrorist uh, takes on the same alienated relationship to the, the population that the, uh, the mad cow does. Mm. So how, are there ways that people push back against that? Or are there, they wa- are there ways that these uh, local relationships across difference, are, you know, overwhelmed or, uh, or pushed back against biosecurity measures?
1: Mm.
2: So, so this fear of um, bioterrorism was uh, one of the main um, drivers uh, for the global mobilization on bird flu. Uh, because uh, so birds carrying flu viruses were described as um, terrorists of of virus bombs, mm-hmm. because they were they were f- uh, flying from China to Europe and potentially to <laughs> the U.S. Or um, and there was very much this idea that um, they were living beings that were among us, but carrying invisible. Uh, threats yeah yeah like microbes um uh, and so I, I i was interested by what it revealed about the imaginary of our uh, contemporary societies but I, I tried to move away from from that because uh, of course we have so I, I i think that this distancing we have made between um Animals on one side and, and, and terrorists on the other side is, is very much a product of industrial societies. That is, we, we don't live with animals, we eat animals. Mm-hmm. And if we have diseases from animals, then we think that animals revenge against us. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very one of the ma- main drivers of the discourse on emerging infectious disease, that animals send us pathogens because they revenge against uh, the industrial system of production. But but so looking at people who live with uh, elephants or, um, or 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 birds or, or cattle in Mongolia, of course they don't have this distance and and they have much more daily relations with with animals. And so when animals um, send disease, uh, most of these people think that they have done something wrong, uh, and not that animals revenge. So I I try to avoid anthropology of religion right. because. Um, Uh, often it imposed on the um, facts that I had to describe the concept of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So the idea that animals as sacrifice for uh, public health or for the life of humans. And I think that sacrifice is not a good concept to describe precisely all the... The small gestures that humans make when they enter in relations with animals. Because sacrifice yes. is about a rupture. It's about yeah. defining mm-hmm. animals as a victim that will carry uh, the the symbols of the society. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I, I follow the line of levi Bull and Levi-Strauss that never use the concept of sacrifice. Okay. And... Um, uh, so, I think sacrifice works in certain societies like India or in Africa, but doesn't work for China or for Amazonia, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but so, 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 so the, the idea of you considering animals as sentient is, is uh, um, much more attentive to the daily life of, of humans when they care for animals. Um, and uh, so it's, it's closer to what Philippe Descola has called an anthropology of nature. That is how uh, nature, as the idea that animals are outside of humanity, is is um, is an end product of, of a long term history of, of daily relation with animals in all societies. Mm.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: mm. So one of the other things that uh, you've done a lot of, uh, which our listeners may or may not know yet, uh, is that you've you've worked with you worked directly with Claude libri Strauss and, mm. and written about him and published his work, mm. uh, and so. Uh, I wanted to ask about your relationship to his work and what uh, what you think we can get out of it still, mm-hmm. um, and also how that uh, how that has changed in the particular moment. You know, L- Levi Strauss's work came up at a particular moment in the middle of the twentieth century. Uh, he's identified as a structuralist, and structuralism was entangled in you know the the kind of height of modernism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all the structuralists were, were really concerned with modernist questions. Uh, so now, uh, the world we live in is all full of flows and disjunctures and, and uh, decentralized networks. And you know, we're, we're debating about ontologies that uh, that weren't on the table in the same way when Levi Strauss was writing. Uh, what what is there in his work that we can that we, that we ought to be hanging on to? Uh, or re- or recovering mm-hmm. in this new sort of postmodern hurdy gurdy world.
2: Mm. So, L- Lévis was had a very uh, modernist movement uh, moment mm-hmm. uh, between exactly 1958 and 1968, uh, ten years, mm-hmm. where he was professor of structural anthropology of anthropology social uh, at the Collège de France, and he published structural anthropology in 1958 as a manifesto of the power of um, the linguistic uh, model for uh, anthropology. And he had this idea that uh, anthropology was about um, uh, uh, describing societies as under a computer, with, was making combinations of polarities. And uh, uh, many young anthropologists came to work with him, often coming from philosophy and, and from abroad, like Marshall Salins, because de- there was this modernist ambition um, mm-hmm which was linked often with uh, Marxist uh, engagement, and a belief in science as something that would uh, redeem uh, uh, humans. And uh, after 1968, uh, when most of his students became radically engaged, uh, uh, Lévi-Strauss distanced himself from from the scientific and political stage and and plunged into the, the field of mythologics, from Amazonia, Mm. and that's where he developed his most ontological intuitions about Amazonia that Descola or Viveros uh, uh, later rediscovered. Uh, And also he became much more skeptical from a political point of view, like uh, talking about um, the genocide of of Amerindians by the West. And so I'm I'm much more interested by this skeptical, Mm. doesn't mean not politically engaged, but by this skeptical Levi-Strauss and uh, more ontological, what Viveros called the post-structural uh, Levi-Strauss, and particularly because he, he, it led him to uh, publish this series of texts about cow disease at the end of the 1990s that have recently been uh, republished uh, under the title um, uh, we, we, we Are All Cannibals, I think, in, in, in the U.S. Uh, and it's, 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 a, it's a series of uh, chronicles that he published in the Italian journal La, La Repubblica. And which showed that he, he had a really, really critical look on the on the on, on his contemporaries, uh, coming from his views about Amazonian cannibals, uh, and I really follow this uh, this movement. So I, I don't pretend that uh, we should be structuralist again in the sense of <laughs> of building the map of human societies on the computer, mm-hmm. but uh, so in that sense I, I follow the ontological uh, trend, which is to say. If we see uh, our modern problems from um, the lessons of um, Amazonian societies that are the victims of modernity, then all our problems uh, are shifted, are, are cast in another way.
3: So I'm fascinated how all of this research is taking place within a research center, within a museum. Can you tell us a little bit about the research center, but also? then the relationship between the Musée de guerre and anthropological Mm. research, how that relationship works?
2: So anthropological research in France has always been linked to museums, Mm -hmm. since the French Revolution at least. Uh, So of course it had its bad moment with uh, racist uh, anthropology. And it's good moments with with the Museum of Man in the 1930s um, and the idea of a a universal science. Uh, That's the time when Lévi-Strauss was teaching in in Brazil. And uh, so in um, 1996, Jacques Chirac, who was the president of uh, the French Republic, uh, uh, proposed that um, uh, anthropology... I mean, so so anthropology was linked to... uh, ethnographic collections that had been uh, uh, made by anthropologists on the field, physical and social anthropologists. And Jacques Chirac proposed that um, uh, this collection would be transferred from the Museum of Man, where they were uh, underfunded Mm -hmm. uh, and and not um, well conserved uh, and with a very low uh, audience, uh, to a new museum uh, built um, under the Eiffel Tower, the, that, and it was very difficult to give it a name, so it became the Musée du Quai livre because we didn't know if it would be a primitive art or, or, or primitive <laughs> yes. civilizations or anything. Um, but so it was all the collections uh, about uh, uh, America, um, Africa, and Oceania, a little bit of Asia, because there's the Musée Guimet that has the uh, ancient uh, Asia, ancient collections. And this uh, museum has a a double um, uh, uh, supervision. Uh, Mm -hmm. One is the Ministry of Culture, and the other is the Ministry of of Research. And so we we try, and and it's equal subvention, it's equal funding. And so we we try to... um, uh, cast a research in anthropology that is uh, deeply informed of the, of the, of the uh, recent trends in, in anthropology, yes. but also connecting anthropology with uh, art history and archaeology, and, and asking questions about um, the history of the collections, uh, the, the meaning of these artifacts in the societies in which they came from, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but also the, the, the circulation that uh, provided these artifacts with different meanings through, through their uh, history. So cl-
3: history of collecting practices and collecting networks. Yeah, and, but also, and the way
2: w- also ritual, been... ritual uses of, of these okay. artifacts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then also the impact of the art market in the new qualification of uh, uh, ethnographic objects.
3: So these are really museological questions. So in many ways, it sounds to me like your research center is involved in what I would call museum studies. Yes. As well as as anthropological
2: Yes. So in some way, the the shift I've made from uh, um, uh, biosecurity, zoonosis to um, ethnographic collections Mm -hmm. is a shift from global health. Yes. What what, what is the meaning of... um, the circulation of living bodies uh, affected by potential pathogens to uh, what is the, the meaning of the circulation of artifacts yes. uh, in uh, the art market, uh, indigenous societies, uh, and that is what is called now global art. So I'm shifting from global health to global art. But, <laughs> but the question is what it means to do research on living beings and artifacts in global societies.
3: Fantastic. So it seems to me that uh, museums of anthropology in former centers of colonial empires have a particularly difficult task. I can see that in a, in a country in a settler country like Australia, you know, we've been trying to address that colonial encounter for a, for now, well since the 1980s really. And I think you know while there are still a lot of problems, a lot of our practices within museums nowadays are based on a principle of collaboration. Mm. And I can see that in a, in a number of Australian museums. But that's much harder for a museum in Paris to achieve so mm. distant from the communi- the source communities of mm. much of your collections. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about the thinking of, muse- of museums like the Quai du pont around how they manage that i mean i can see the british museum for example with a very clear policy of circulating their collections throughout the globe and in that way working a little bit with communities and taking objects back how does it work at your place
2: So uh, France is not um, uh, a settler uh, colonial power, (laughs) (laughs) uh, it will be be described as an extraction form of colonial power. (laughs) That is, we we derived a lot of uh, our current health from Africa or um, in the lesser part from um, America and, uh, and, and Southeast Asia. Uh, and and we also extracted objects <laughs> <laughs> yes. that became part of uh, uh, national heritage because we have this law on national heritage, uh, which also um, forbids uh, restitution in the in the legal sense. That yes, that so your
3: repatriation policies do not allow repatriation because all the objects, objects. that have
2: been collected in the last. 400 centuries have become part of the national heritage so we need so our museum needs to have the parliament The right to restitute objects that uh, are considered as part of the heritage of the French um, nation So that makes it more more complicated more complicated. So it was it was easy to do for human remains Mm-hmm. because human remains under bioethical laws are not considered as part of national heritage.
3: Can I ask your question? Um, I've got a PhD student together with Emma Cavall here at Deakin who's actually looking into um, collections of um, biological specimens of hair and looking into um, repatriation policies and, and where, hair, where the ontological status of hair is mm-hmm. in that particular field. So... I'm really interested in what is a human remain in the French system?
2: It's complicated because... <laughs> 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 Sorry, I knew
3: that was going to be a complicated <laughs> no, it's, question. It's, it's, greater, the right? limit. it's the limit of the human, human,
2: human begin a head, head, Yeah, head, where does, head, does, head, does one, a human yeah. begin and an end. That's mm. So, so the, the history of the Cabernet is very interesting for that, is that when Jacques Chirac decided to transfer the collections from the Musée de l'Homme, yes. he wanted to take cultural artefacts. So he said, you, "We're going to leave all the skulls to the Musée de l'Homme because they are doing physical anthropology, and mm-hmm. and what we do at Keboni is social and cultural anthropology. But um, there are I don't know how many, but uh, around maybe 1,000 skulls that are considered as cultural artifacts because they are, are worked are, in are, some way. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. uh, that was the case for the Maori heads that have been restituted by the Keboni in 2000s." Uh, eight I think or ten
3: so that was an example where your parliament gave permission yes so there was w- there was a law of
2: declassification or, mm-hmm. or deaccessioning deaccessioning we deaccessioning. say deaccessioning. in English yeah. yes Yeah. but the term was declassification yes. okay because in they French were, yeah they were they were uh, classified as human remains and not as cultural artifacts uh, right. they, moved yeah.
1: Yeah. They, moved they moved between categories they moved between categories,
2: categories. Yeah. yeah but of course hair is everywhere in That's the objects right.
3: Yeah. yeah. And not because there's hair in objects and there's hair as hair and yeah and, the and there two was I think one of different.
2: the one of the replies of the Cabranli on the debate about the Maori heads was to organize an exhibition about hair to ah. show to show the beauty of hair and the okay. fact that all societies used hair, hair as an as an ornamental element
3: mm-hmm. <S laughs> so it's always cultural to some degree
2: yeah so so th- that's the problem with the division between Caeroli and the Musée de l'homme is that we we come back to this distinction between uh, natural uh, mm-hmm. uh, human remains mm-hmm. and cultural artifacts. Mm-hmm. But in the management of collections, of course, this division is constantly blurred. Yeah.
3: As indeed mm-hmm. it is in the field of anthropology itself with the ontological turn. So that exactly. that classification yeah. system so, doesn't so exactly work if we're talking about human, non-human and relationships between. So the, the,
2: the, the, the problem we're facing in our research department is to describe museums as ontological mat- machines or yes, matrixes, yes. that they have to deal with this demand of restitution uh, that constantly blur the the, the nature-culture division that is so important for the making of modern museums. <laughs> yes,
3: that's right. It's, it's really interesting terrain. And... Uh, I'm kind of wondering then, so that's sort of on the collection management and, and the particular field of repatriation. What about in terms of exhibitions? Are you d- how how does that play out um, in terms of how you actually develop exhibitions that obviously your your collections are at some point from some source community? So, what's the
2: so our research department there? is not involved in making right. exhibitions. Okay. The there are two. Regimes of exhibition, there's the permanent exhibition yes. that is designed on a very 19th century model of uh, the tour of the world <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> with uh, every artifact linked to a certain society mm-hmm. uh, little documentation uh, because there's this idea that um, the visitor should encounter the object without too much knowledge uh, and so we have, we have the website to provide knowledge uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's our role as researchers to enrich the website but but the, the exhibition is is made in such a way that there's there's no research included uh, in okay. the permanent exhibition and then the temporary exhibitions are designed to provide uh, different angles or perspectives on the collections of the museum uh, and so each uh, per, uh, temporary exhibition is um, curated by um, uh, a, a, pr- a Person, uh, I mean, uh, who, who who has a certain uh, perspective or point of view mm-hmm. um, on uh, what it means to show ethnographic artifacts today? So it can be it can be artist, it can be um, a, a specialist of a certain society. There was a football player, uh, Lilian Turam, uh, mm-hmm. who did something on racism and uh, uh, the the notion of human zoos yes um so it's a, it's a very diverse set of commissaires. we say commissaire which is yeah, difficult. Commission, commissioned, commissioned
3: exhibitions yeah. in a sense so yeah. that's the way okay i think i get it so that's the way you introduce different voices exactly. is in your temporary exhibition program and having them curated not necessarily by professional curators yeah. but people who have so something the idea different is that to the, say the,
2: the museum doesn't have only one message which would yes. be delivered by the president of the museum or by the research department but it's it's a forum for different voices to express themselves, but always using the collection. So the idea is that we are not we are not ashamed of our collections. Yes, They're, they are a colonial heritage that we have to um, display, enrich, and sometimes restitute. Uh, but we we show that they can be viewed from different perspectives.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, it's been great hearing all our different perspectives, and it's been great having you here, Frederick. Uh, Thanks for joining us, everyone, here for another episode of Anthropology at Deakin. We've been speaking today with Frederick Keck from the K. Brunley Museum and CNRS, as well as Andrea Whitcomb from Deakin University. If you'd like to learn more about Frederick's work, you can find him online at the CNRS website. And if you'd like to learn more about anthropology, you can find us at blogs.deakin.edu.au slash anthropology.